Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. Even though it's called second or two Corinthians in our Bibles, there are multiple clues within this letter that it's not the second thing he ever wrote to the church of ancient Corinth. Paul started this Jesus community in Corinth some time ago on one of his missionary journeys. You can read the story in the book of Acts chapter 18. And after moving on, Paul got a report that things were not going well there. So he wrote the letter that we call 1 Corinthians to correct these problems. And it appears that many in the church rejected Paul's teaching in that letter and rebelled against his authority. And so we learn in this letter that Paul had followed up in person with what he calls the painful visit. And after that, he sent a letter which he says was written with anguish and tears. And so after all these measures, most but not all of the Corinthians realized their arrogance and they apologized to Paul. They wanted to reconcile. And so Paul wrote this letter to assure them of his love and commitment. The letter's been designed with three main sections, each addressing a distinct topic. So Paul first finalizes his reconciliation with the Corinthians. Then in chapters 8 and 9, he addresses the topic of forgotten generosity. And in the final chapters, Paul challenges the remaining Corinthians who still reject him. My friends, would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, pour out your Holy Spirit on me and on all of us who are gathered here. Take my words and make them yours. Take all of our thoughts and make them yours. And take our hearts and set them on fire for you. Father, we love you. We ask all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So as the video says, this is, we're in 2 Corinthians, but it's, it's at least the third letter that Paul actually wrote to the church in Corinth. So obviously the letter in the middle was no good. Uh, this is all about Paul sort of reuniting with this church that rejected him. And, and the, the, the specific conflict he seems to have been having with the church in Corinth is that they got it into their heads that this Paul guy seems... Like he's maybe not actually the best apostle. Uh, I mean, he keeps getting arrested, he keeps getting thrown in jail and, and beaten, and he's he's you know he's homeless and he's you know usually quite poor. And, and shouldn't he be having more success and more respect than this if he's actually a messenger from God? And so, so the conflict was that they they kind of saw Paul and how his life was going and his outward appearance and said, mm, no, we we don't want that. Um, and they've reconciled, but a whole lot of what Paul writes in this letter is actually still kind of reminding them not that they were wrong, but why they were wrong. So we're going to start in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. So people in Paul's day didn't really travel for pleasure unless they were very, very rich. They traveled for work. And when they did, they carried official documents with them, to identify who they were and, and that they were actually credentialed to do the work they were supposed to do. They had a letter of recommendation because um, you couldn't just look up their Facebook profile back then. 
And we know that in the early church, it was common for the apostles themselves to actually carry letters of recommendation with them so that when they showed up to a new place and began to preach, they could actually certify that they were ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Even back then, they didn't just let anybody do it. They wanted to make sure you were the right guy. And, and the first time that Paul came to Corinth, he would have had exactly that kind of letter with him, probably signed by, uh, by the, the sort of Jerusalem council, the, the leadership in Jerusalem, like Peter and James. And basically what's happening is the Corinthians are like accusing him of falsifying the letter, right? It's a fake one. And so they want him to send another one. And he kind of implies that they're, that they're even offering, hey, if you give us another letter to prove that you really are a genuine apostle, then, then we would even be happy to write you letters in the future because we're just that cool. Um, but again, he, he's been imprisoned, he's been beaten, he lives in poverty. He must not be as good an apostle as he says he is. Maybe he's not genuine. And Paul's response is, no, no, you don't get it. Your church only exists because God sent me there to preach. Uh, you, you, you wouldn't have a church if I wasn't the real deal. You are my letter. You are a much more powerful credential for me than anyone, anything anyone else could just write down. Because look how your church is thriving. Look how it's growing. Look at all the amazing things God is doing among you. You're my letter. And then he moves on into chapter 4. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise us with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things unseen are eternal. He talks about having this treasure in, in clay jars. Because what he's saying is, it's not the messenger who's important, it's the message. The Corinthians are confusing the two. They're judging the quality of the messenger, and it's distracting them from the message. The Corinthians have been looking at Paul and seeing that he's constantly in and out of prison, stirring up trouble. He's poor, he's frequently homeless, and they've decided if he really was a messenger from God, he ought to look a bit more important. And you kind of can't fault them for that, right? If y'all found out that I was getting thrown in prison every other week, you probably would fire me. <laughs> and who could blame you? During World War II, uh, diplomatic communications between the U.S. and Britain were never conducted over the telephone because the line would have been bugged. So 
the, all the sensitive, meaningful communication happening between the two governments was written down, placed in a diplomatic bag, and flown across the Atlantic almost every day. Except for the really, really, really important stuff. The, the most important communications, the most urgent things, the most highly classified documents couldn't be sent in a bag that everybody knew was an important bag full of diplomatic communication. So they sent it through the mail in regular envelopes, just through the Postal Service. No one's going to look there. God chooses to use unimpressive envelopes to carry his most important messages. Precisely so that the message would get past those who would seek to stop it and so that the audience who need to hear the message will focus on the message and not the messenger. Now that has implications for all of us. I'm not calling you all unimpressive. But it means God can and does use all sorts of unexpected people for his most important purposes. And you all should understand this very well since I am your pastor. Right? I'm not impressive. I'm not the best speaker. I'm not the smartest. And I wear shirts with crabs on them. I drive an 18-year-old Camry. I, I'm painfully awkward in social situations. And none of that matters because what matters is that I'm preaching the gospel. Y'all yeah, yeah, can talk back. It's okay to do that, by the way. But it's not just that I preach it. That's not enough. I have to actually live the gospel. If I... Are we just starting? Y'all can do that all you want. It's great. <laughs> My life and yours, since you are all ministers of the gospel with me, should always be an embodiment of the gospel. And the gospel is specifically the death and resurrection of Jesus. We are meant to embody his death in our suffering in this life and his resurrection in our transformation by the Holy Spirit. Paul's sufferings, his beatings, his imprisonment, these are actually his marks of authenticity. He is suffering as Jesus suffered. He's holding out all the things he's suffering as saying, this is, if you, if you don't think you yourselves are a good enough letter of recommendation, how about this? The God you worship suffered and died on a cross. The God you worship was arrested by the same government that throws me in prison. I'm doing the same things he did. Isn't that not proof enough? There's this really brief quote there in verse 13. I believed and so I spoke. And um, it sounds at first like it's kind of just a little throwaway line, maybe a reference to some document that we don't have. But actually, it's a quote from Psalm 116, which says this. I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. Because he inclined his ear to me, therefore I will call on him as long as I live. The snares of death encompassed me, the pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish. Then I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. When I was brought low, he saved me. Return, O my soul, to your rest, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I will walk before the Lord into the land of living. I believed and so I spoke. He's, he's saying he has come to understand through painful personal experience exactly what the psalmist is talking about. 
The traps of death are all around him. He's being dragged down to the depths. Things look hopeless, and it's there that his God met him and rescued him. Just as Jesus has gone down to death and been raised up to new life, Paul has faced the darkness, and he found God's rescue there. His suffering, his shame, they aren't the terrible things that people are assuming them to be. They are actually the very places where he meets God face to face and understands God's saving work and his saving power most fully. And so we come into chapter 5, verses 16 and 17. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Anytime that we um, create a new world for ourselves, the way that we live has to change to adapt. When you get a dog, right, your life changes because now you've got this little creature that depends on you and it needs to be walked and it needs to be fed, it needs to be trained. You've got to make sure it's got water. You have to schedule vet appointments, so you've got to adjust your budget to pay for the vet now. It's got to have medicine. Um, you have to clean it from time to time. Um, you, your whole schedule, your whole uh, habits of, of daily life are all different because you've got this little dog to take care of. When you have a kid, and they're the, basically the same thing, <laughs> you know, uh, um, having a kid is just like a dog that slowly learns how to talk. I mean, it's, um, when you have a kid, your, your life changes in ways that you can never be prepared for. And I know because I have tried to prepare new parents and they don't listen to you, right? My kid will be different. Famous last words. Right? But once you have a kid, your whole life, it's a whole new world, it's a whole new life, a whole new creation. Because your family unit is different now. And the same is true when you get married, right? There is really no way to truly understand before your marriage all the ways in which your life will change. And all of these scenarios, something changes in your life that creates a whole new world for you. And all the, the little things about your life are going to change. It's almost impossible to sit down and list out all the things that were different before those things happened, right? Your daily routine, your spending habits, the way you spend your free time, your priorities, the, even the way you think, all of it has to change. And the same thing is true when we become a new creation in Christ. But actually, the best example is moving to a new country. If you move to a new country, you have to learn a new language. You have to learn a new culture. You have to learn new laws. You even have to learn new values, new, new social cues, even new body language at times. Everything is different. If you try and speak your old language and live by your old laws and, and go by your old values, you're not going to be able to get by, not for long. You have to adapt. Becoming a Christian is like moving to a new country because you are now living in the kingdom of God. You're a new creation, and that means that you have to change the way you live your life accordingly. And this might sound like advice for new Christians, but the reality is those of us even who can't remember a point in our lives when we were not a Christian, who've been raised in the church the whole time, we need to hear it as well because we can very easily fall into patterns of behavior 
that don't belong in God's kingdom. Being a Christian should alter your perspective on everything because Jesus is the lens through which you see the world. This is precisely why we can't fall into the same pattern of this sort of conservative, progressive binary that the rest of our culture loves so much. People love to lump everything into these two just utterly inflexible categories. And if you want to think one way about one issue, then you've got to accept the whole package. But this makes no sense. It makes absolutely no sense. Think about it. How does it make any rational sense whatsoever that in our culture, if you want to say that you're pro-life, people will assume that you're also in favor of the death penalty? It makes no sense. There's no logic or reason there. We are new creations in Christ. That means everything about us should be distinctive. All of our values should be rooted in the gospel first and foremost. Everything about the way we live our lives should be distinct. Everything about our values should be distinct. And frankly, we ought to be a little confusing to people who are not Christians. They ought to be a little baffled by how we live our lives, by how we prioritize things, by the things we say we value, by our willingness to demonstrate kindness and grace and mercy to people in all circumstances. The Corinthians are still living by the old values. The difficulty they have with Paul, or that they had had with Paul, is that he doesn't look or act the way that important, influential, and trustworthy people were supposed to. And because they didn't understand the new values of God's kingdom, they end up rejecting the gospel message itself. Which takes us into chapter 6. Working together with him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Now is the day of salvation. We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, by great endurance, in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love by truthful speech and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. Through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing and yet possessing everything." This is what it means to follow a crucified Messiah. It means being caught between the old and the new world like grain in the millstone, being ground down. It's, it's putting together two things that clash. It's finding joy in suffering, living with the paradoxes that are inevitable when we follow Christ in a broken world. How do you respond to sufferings and difficulties and hardships? Most of us, no matter how faithful, no matter how genuine, no matter how holy, will never face the kind of constant hardship that Paul did. We just don't live in that world, but we'll still have difficulty. 
we will still face hardships and sufferings and, and things won't go our way. And how do you respond? For Paul, the challenges he faced and his faith went hand in hand. You can't have one without the other. God's glory is revealed in his sufferings because it's in those moments that he had to figure out how to rely completely on God. It's in those moments that he truly understands what it meant to be a new creation and what it meant to be living a resurrection life. So we come to chapter 7, verse 1. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of the body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. So this is where he puts it all together. We strive for holiness. This is what John Wesley called sanctification, the relentless pursuit of holiness, striving every day to be more and more like Jesus. Not because if we fall short, then we're just doomed to hell, but because the more like Jesus we are, the brighter our light will shine in the darkness. That's what sanctification is about. It's not about trying to earn our salvation or trying to be good enough so that God will love us. God loves us no matter what, and we're justified by Christ's death on the cross, not by anything that we do. We pursue holiness because that's how we do the work of the gospel. That's how we make a difference in the world. That's how we fulfill God's purpose for our lives. Because Paul's overall point is this. People with transformed hearts who live holy lives, empowered and transformed by the Holy Spirit, fulfill the law of the Old Testament and keep its commandments. This is the fulfillment of the Torah. This is how we, beginning with Jesus, fulfill the law of the Old Testament. All throughout his letters and his ministry, as in his work, as he was working out what it meant to be a Christian, Paul had the very end of the book of Deuteronomy in mind where Moses lays out the terms of the covenant and says, There's, I'm laying before you blessings and curses. And in chapter 30, verse 1, this is what he says. When all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today, with all your heart, and with all your soul, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. And he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will take you. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, and you may possess it. And he will make you more than prosperous and numerous and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. There is this concept in, in ancient Judaism that the end goal, the, 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 the thing we're all striving for is to love God so deeply that we don't need the law anymore because we won't have to be reminded how to follow it. We won't have to be reminded how to be holy. And what Paul is saying is, that's exactly what Jesus allows us to do. 
This part of the covenant is fulfilled in Jesus. He allows us to love God with such depth and strength that we don't need a list of rules to follow. We now know God in our hearts. The law is fulfilled. And now, now, whether you are a Jew or not, you are part of Abraham's family. You are part of the people of God who are set apart, not from the world, but for the world. We struggle to leave behind the world's way of seeing things and, and, we, and to adopt a kingdom mindset. We still seek out and applaud the same status symbols as the non-believing world, and we still see the things which mark us out for glory in God's kingdom as shameful or undesirable. But Jesus doesn't expect us to figure things out on our own. And he doesn't expect us to change on our own. First, Jesus modeled for us the kind of life that we're supposed to live. Studying the Gospels, reading stories of Jesus' life, that gives us the example to follow. And it's there that we see what it means to live out a life of grace and truth. To make ourselves a living sacrifice to God. To love our neighbor unconditionally and to be faithful unto death. And Jesus sent the Spirit to dwell within us so that we would not be dependent on our own power to follow his example. It's the Spirit who transforms our hearts each and every day, reshaping us to be more and more like Jesus. It's the Spirit who both teaches us and empowers us to reject the ways of the world and embrace the ways of the kingdom. But that does not mean we have no work to do because the Holy Spirit is not a labor-saving device. We have to make the effort. We have to seek that transformation. We have to pray for it. We have to work at it to consciously try to be different, to be holy. Most importantly, we have to actually want it. God won't force a transformation on us that we don't want. If we don't want to change, if we don't want to be holy, if we don't want to be like Jesus, he won't make us. He'll wait until we're ready, until we truly, deeply want nothing more than to be holy as God is holy. This is not about earning your spot in heaven. It's not about being a better Christian than someone else. It isn't even about being good enough. Salvation is a free gift from God. You can't earn it. And since we've all sinned and fallen short, there's no such thing as, a, as being a better Christian than anyone else. And none of us can ever be good enough. This is about learning to live in the kingdom of God, which will one day cover the whole world. This is about being the people of God who were called according to his purpose. And his purpose is not to whisk us away to safety while he destroys the world and all the sinners in it. His purpose is to save his good creation and make it new. And he wants to include humanity in that work. And the strange thing is, when we adopt kingdom values, when we are transformed by the Holy Spirit, it really is as if a light has shined in the darkness. People around us can see the truth by that light where it was once obscured. Living as kingdom people, embracing the values of God's kingdom, even, even when that means we suffer for it, is exactly the kind of thing that changes the world and that changes humanity. We aren't called simply for our own benefit. We are called as God's servants for the benefit of the world. It's through us that God intends to carry out his saving purposes in the world. That's what's at stake here. Nothing else can possibly be more important than doing the work of God 
in the kingdom of God. So, my friends, I'll invite you, as John Wesley did, to fix your eyes upon the blessed hope of your calling and make all the things of the world subordinate to it. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.